Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Law College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler, and today I have an incredible conversation to share with you. I just spoke with a man named Marcin Yakubovsky, who is the founder of the Open Source Ecology. It's an open collaborative of engineers, producers, and builders developing what they call the Global Village Construction Set, uh, which is essentially a set of the 50 most important machines that it takes for modern life to exist. Marcin has a very interesting philosophy on life, interesting story on how he started doing, uh, building this project almost two decades ago now. And uh, I really love his message here. And I think it's something worth listening to and worth considering um, for anybody that's interested in, in having more control over their way that they live their life uh, and ultimately living a more fulfilling life. But I'll let you learn about that in our conversation. So please, without further delay, enjoy this episode with Marcin Yakubovsky. Hey, Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you. Let's dive in. Let's do it. So for the audience out there who maybe is unfamiliar with your work right now, would you mind giving them a little bit of background about yourself and what you're currently working on? Yep. So I started Open Source Ecology. So we've got a project called, uh, we're working on a global village construction set. It's essentially a set of the 50 different machines it takes for modern life to exist that we create an open source and develop that so that people can apply that to uh, any kind of purpose, like starting a business, a small farm, or any other enterprise. But basically, open, uh, the greater picture of this is developing collaborative methods where we develop real pl- products in a collaborative way. So if you, if you haven't seen, do look at, look at the four-minute TED Talk that summarizes this. We build things like tractors, circuit makers, bread ovens, and all, all the different things that are required to lead a modern standard of living. So it's a, it's completely open source. So you can download the blueprints and build things like tractors or houses. It's a brief overview. It's incredible. And I'm looking right now, there's like a grid image of all the different machines and it's, it's quite remarkable to, to uh, think about what could be possible with sort of these, you know, starting points for, you know, the building blocks for modern life. How did you get to this point? What, what was in your background that led you to, you know, even getting to, this idea and putting so much energy and effort into this project. It's been almost two decade, decades now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost two decades. So started in 2004 on actual idea. Now, what was this about? So my background is um, came from Poland when I was 10. My father's a scientist. I always thought about good things to do with science. So then I pursued that. I pursued chemistry in college and then actually physics. I got up to a physics PhD. I really discovered that was useless and I didn't have the practical skills The, as the farther I went in my, my schooling, the less useful I felt I was in terms of making impact on pressing world issues. So I started the project. Now, during the college time, what really changed me was the, just observing how things work. So I studied fusion energy. It's the stuff that goes on in the sun, the source of all energy we get on earth. 
So we're trying to create fusion on Earth. But um, when um, I looked into it more and more, it was, and the farther I went in the research, we were doing things that didn't have applications immediately and, and it didn't seem like this would solve any issues. And even in the classes, you, I went to a professor once asking about this long equation I saw and, and asking, well, what does this really mean that this is so abstract? And I was told that, well, this actually doesn't exist. I just made it up. And it's things like that. We're, we're studying such abstract things in our, in our curriculum, but there are real pressing world issues. So I want to do something about that. And, and after observing that we don't really collaborate in, um, in academia even, um, I mean, I could not talk openly about the work that I was doing because we had some hot material. I mean, obviously, if, if you reveal your your work to somebody, they publish papers, they get funding in front of you, that kind of competitive deal. Um, so the deal was I couldn't talk openly about what I was doing, and I felt that was such a waste. And I started envisioning what it would look like if we truly collaborated and did things in a different way. And someone introduced me to Linux at one point in the college career, and I was like, wow, this is a different operating system. It's not mm -hmm. Windows or Mac. It's a thing you can download for free. You can modify it. You can do what you want, and, and it's even free. So my mind was open. Hey, there's other options out there as well. So all these things combined made me think, okay, let's let's start this. I'm, I'm done with academia. Let's start, get a plot of land, and start a civilization reboot experiment. That's incredible, and, it's, and it is so interesting to think about how the, the structure of academia sort of creates that environment, creates sort of a bubble where uh, collaboration is not highly encouraged because of how competitive it is. People spend their entire careers trying to make some sort of breakthrough that gets them, you know, grants and funding for future projects. It's, it's a shame that that's the situation, but I'm glad that, you know, you're able to break out of that and, and, you know, uh, dive into this world of open sourced, uh, you know, uh, collaboration. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And, and then one of the things to find out about open source, like a lot of open source projects, there's limits there too, in that a lot of people will go off into a corner and work on something for a long time and then publish the results. That's open source, but it's also not collaborative. So, so like when you, when you talk about open source, you want to make the distinction that, okay, is it open source, but is it also collaborative as well? Those two things are really critical in the last, last couple of years, we we've been just looking at, just finding out, getting amazed at how little true collaboration exists. Because even if you have some open source project, it doesn't mean that you can collaborate with them or they will help you to build upon it, whatever. So um, I'm in this, this game for life. So that's why I, I pay attention to like, okay, if it's useful, why do not we actually work together on business models that this could spread to the world so that we can make an impact? And that's the kind of game we're playing right now. And so how did you sort of, because it's such a large idea. It's like, what was sort of the founding thesis for you? What were those yeah. first few questions you asked yourself to get to this yeah. point? Actually, it's, it boils down to things like, so I come from Poland and, and actually my, my uh, grandmother was in a concentration camp. Wow. My grandfather was uh, in a Polish underground derailing German supply trains. So we have that culture where war was part of our reality and then communism. And then I came to America. It's like, whoa, what a night and day shift where shelves were empty and everything was gray under communist Poland. You had to wait in line for food. And then you come to an American <laughs> supermarket and there's like a hundred of each item, which was just crazy. And I thought, well, what's the difference where, why does one country just have it all and another place doesn't? Like, what is the difference? And, and, um, that made me think that, well, 
material resources are abundant. They're common in many, many places. Like, you know, all the, because all the wealth that we have in today's society comes from natural resources, right? So why is it that some places have it, some places don't? So I, I was thinking that, yeah, it's about how we, the operating system on top of those resources, your politics, your economics, the way we collaborate, how does that really work? And that's, and so I started thinking that, well, uh, if we collaborate openly and share that knowledge, then we can bring everybody up. And that was the simple, simple equation. You, you can have either deprivation or absolute prosperity for everybody. And also knowing just basics of physics, it's like we know that there's 10,000 times more power that comes from the sun that we use than we use today, even with fossil fuels. So there's like plenty of energy, plenty of materials. Why are we sweating it? Mm -hmm. yeah. I gotcha. And uh, for for the blueprints that you actually came up with, how what was yeah. the what was the process of of narrowing these down? I feel I could imagine like that'd be an overwhelming place to start trying to figure out what are the most fundamental technologies to make you know modern life possible. Yeah. Yeah, so basically it was a, it's actually a page on the wiki. People can look that up. Uh, it's called the product selection metric. But essentially it was any street or any product that had at least like a billion dollar market that was fundamentally important to, okay, how do we get our housing, our food, our transportation, our energy, and go through the list of known available technologies. So this is not about inventing anything new. This is just saying let's open source those tools to make life easier for everybody. So, for, but also it, it came from a bootstrapping perspective as well. Uh, as soon as I got out of the college, uh, got onto a piece of land in Missouri, 30 acres. And I found that my tractor broke. So I bought a tractor, then it broke. I paid to get it repaired then it broke again. And I found I was, I was out of luck. Um, I noticed that the tools are not available to make it happen. So, so the first thing I noticed is, okay, well, I need a tractor. So let's design a tractor. I need a place to live, so I designed the the, the 3D, uh, 3D printer, the the brick press, the the brick press to press soil blocks from the earth. So the brick press and the tractor were some of the first first tools. But basically, going through, what are the the main tools? What are your needs? Like, if you eat, you might need a tractor to do some agriculture. If you want to live in a house, you got to get some construction technology under your belt. So just went through all the obvious things that exist out there and said, okay, let's open source that. So it's lower cost, more accessible and lifetime design. Amazing. And, and how do you imagine, you know, what's, what's your sort of, let's say ultimate vision for this information being available to people. Yeah. Ultimate vision. It kind of um, is really about um, how we have prosperity in America or in the advanced world. I mean, of course there's, disadvantaged spots everywhere, but getting the, the material security out of the equation of human existence so that we can focus on what's truly important to us. So right now, most of us are still in one mental framework. We're all stuck working on our nine to fives instead of doing the things that, are, that we're really passionate about. And, and even in the West, most of us are still pursuing things that aren't necessarily our best interest, like more than 50% of people in this country don't like their jobs, things like that. So it's to address that issue of, of having the time by removing the survival element from the equation and then making it life easy. So we focus on what's really important. That's kind of the end state. There's details on, on 
on how that could play out. But, but the philosophical viewpoint is let's free ourselves from the toil of survival, which you'd think we would be there already, but that that myth of technology is, is still here. It's like we've got the most outstanding and amazing technology around us, but most people are still so busy and not really focused on what's important to them. Yeah, and so, so you're saying that a lot of people are more focused on trying to, you know, get the products that they need to survive or, you know, replace by just purchasing outright, you know, the new this or that, uh, rather than focusing on living, you know, more wholesome life with the people around them. Well, it's, it's, it's about the cost of living. Like the cost of living is, is tremendous. And, and you, you, you have to go to work so that you can put a roof over your head and food on your table. I mean, that's still, if you think about that, it's like the primitive state of survival from millennia ago. You're just trying trying to survive. And right, right now we've got iPads and computers to make life better. But I mean, it's still um, too much time is spent on just that equation of making a living. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I was actually just thinking this last night uh, about how, you know, in our modern world, we, we think we have, you know, many luxuries that, you know, uh, you know, hundreds of years ago, you know, they, they would only dream of, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, a, lot of, a lot of times, uh, you know, or, or it's interesting to compare it to maybe like a serfdom kind of setup in, uh, you know, Europe, you know, hundreds of years ago where, yeah. you know, someone would be given a certain plot of land to work that land uh, and you'd have to, you know, give away a portion of your crops, so then you could survive off a portion of the crops. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, living that kind of lifestyle seems now when you look back, it seems like so barbaric. And then the more that you think about the way that we live today, where many people are taking out, you know, 30 year mortgages on a home and they go to some, uh, you know, they go to a, a job where they're mostly, you know, doing maybe some sort of digital work, some sort of knowledge work uh, to, you know, earn the income needed to just pay for their cell phone bill, pay for their electricity, pay for their mortgage, pay for all these uh, variety of things where they never really get out uh, from underneath that sort of setup. They do that for, you know, 30 years or whatever until they eventually start to own some things. But then, you know, oftentimes the best part of their life may have already passed them by. Um, yeah. And it's strange to think that, you know, in the modern era, we really, you know, are not too yeah. much farther off than we were hundreds of years ago. In terms of our free time, I mean, yeah, I mean, there were definitely victories that, you know, we didn't have like this slave-like labor of people working in factories all day and night and child labor or whatever, or slavery. I mean, it's all better, but still at the same time, just what's possible with technology, the the ridiculous productivity that, you know, like one farmer can feed like a thousand people or whatever, you know, you have this thousand acre plot and this big tractor and you make the entire harvest happen in a day or two. I mean, it's just unprecedented productivity on, on all fronts. Yet, because of the way we structure society, it's so complex and the way it's designed, the wealth is extracted and typically um, leads to still the, the bad distribution of wealth. That kind of situation is very well with us. So what do we do about that? So we talk about let's reskill people, let's avail the tools of productivity to everybody so that we don't have this, this mega corporation producing cars like GM yes. about the open source micro factory in every community where each community could produce just about anything that they need. Like uh, the vision, like there's a vision called fab cities where people talk about what about, what if all the cities made all the things that they used cons- that they consumed? So basically the distribution of power from the, um, the centralized state of today 
to a much more distributed one, which is actually more efficient and better for people and people have time and the ability to decide what they really want to do. Not, not like, oh, I need a job, you know? Yeah. No, I think we need to unjob. We've got the amazing technology, um, but it's, uh, it's definitely shortcomings to how we're using it that there's still a lot of issue with people attaining their sense of freedom or liberty. And right now, like if you turn that into the political scene right now, uh, basically one of the things that are happening is you've got this, this intellectual class and the worker class kind of deal. I mean, <laughs> where the people, the intelligent people, the privileged people have so much, um, they don't work with their hands anymore. They don't produce anything. So they, they live in this virtual world like college teaches us to do. We're on the topic of college. Uh, but then we find we're so far removed from like very basic survival. And then and we relegate all the dirty jobs to, to, the, uh, to create this polarization in an economic system where it's, where it's like the working class versus the elite class kind of deal. Yep. Um, that's, that's right now causing a lot of troubles. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I always think of it just from the, you know, the perspective of just overall human satisfaction, you know, like mm -hmm. being able to know, the components that make up your life and know how to fix those components and being able oh, yeah. to, you know, work with your hands has a certain level of satisfaction to it. Um, I actually just had um, a gentleman named Joel Salatin on my, uh, on the show here. Oh, uh, no are you familiar with okay. Joel? Yeah. Um, yeah. So Polyphase Farm and we were talking about that exact thing where, you know, uh, he has people that there's almost like digital refugees coming into his, uh, right. you know, apprenticeship programs and working with their hands and building something tangible for the first time in their lives. And it's, it's such a, you know, wave of relief and joy for them that, uh, you know, most modern people just don't get from their, uh, you know, digital knowledge based jobs that, you know, don't really provide that level of satisfaction anymore. Uh, you mentioned the, you know, the self-sustaining cities, the, you know, it's sort of like these micro environments where we could uh, have that. How do you, I guess one of my uh, questions is how do we deliver the, yeah, you know, how do, where do you, where do the materials come from in the first place? You know, obviously for most of our modern luxuries it requires some, you know, there's, there's a mining uh, economic structure of pulling these materials out of the ground. So how, how do the materials get to the, you know, to the people in the first place and outside of the hands of, you know, typically in some sort of mining yeah. situation, you need a government behind it. You need, you know, funding to pull those materials. You need investments and then you need to distribute those to large industries who can, you know, uh, do something with those materials, those raw materials to make them into more usable parts. So we're, how, how do we distribute that end of the, let's say, uh, supply chain? Yeah, how does that work? We still have to get resources out of the ground because the, all the, the rocks, sunlight, plants, soil, water, that's the life stuff of modern civilization. That doesn't go away, but the question is how, how would you do it? Uh, you would still need operations like that. And if you have, say, maybe the mega, mega mines, they can be distributed too. Like, interestingly, like, just to give you one example. So let's let's start with that mega mines let's take steel a super common element well that has to be mined if it's but if it's already if you take the example of steel if it's already mined and you can talk about circular supply chains where then you build in the foundry system or then the furnaces that melt it back down just like uh, in a sense of recycling so we don't have to go back to the earth to dig out more. We can do more of that. And that's the circular economy concept. But um, there's no 
no evil to doing that, like say mining, as long as you're being, I mean, cause we gotta have some resources, but you wanna do it responsibly. So maybe not like large scale strip mining for coal. What if, okay, so now take the coal example. What if in a future economy, we're developing technology to the point that hydrogen energy is feasible. So we're splitting water instead of um, burning coal, we're burning water or burning hydrogen that comes from water. Mm-hmm. So there's always the, the question of how you're doing the technology. Uh, do you do it in a centralized polluting way that's, that causes environmental and social issues? Or can you do it in a, in a more benign way? And the, 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 how I've been studying a lot of this, it's like there's, a, there's a, an equivalent or some kind of a substitute for just about anything that you can do something in a, in a really bad way or do it in a really sane way. Like, you know, with the, with the renewable energy as an example, or cyclic material flows like in the, in the circular economy or organic farming instead of huge centralized animal feeding operations like Joel Salatin. Yep. Um, so there's, there's different ways of doing things. And the idea is that you distribute that more and have more places build up the knowledge set because it's really, that's technology. Technology is the knowledge set that allows you to take those abundant resources that are everywhere and turn them into your modern standard of living. So just like right now, we, for example, have a hard time. Uh, we re- are really reevaluating whatever we're shipping from China before, say, to make tractors or 3D printers. Like, we're going to stop that. It's like, let's build more from the ground up. And that's, that's what the call for open source collaborative technology is that that knowledge becomes available everywhere. So not just one good company makes the best product and competes and hides it and patents it, but everyone has access to that. So you can raise the bar, get the quality up, get the cost down. And another big factor is like we talked about, you mentioned about black boxes that you don't know how anything works. Well, if you do know yeah. how, to, how things work, if they're made locally and you can keep them alive forever, you can repair it, you can recycle it, and therefore the lifetime design aspect comes out of this more benign economic form based on open source design. It's, it's an amazing thing because it makes a lot of sense and it seems like it would improve everyone's, you know, or the people that live uh, this way, it would improve their overall uh, satisfaction with life. Mm-hmm. But the, it, it, it appears to me that the, the biggest, uh, obstacle the biggest hurdle is you know it's it's shifting people's values and mm-hmm. shifting the overall uh the way that business works in the united states to you know betray the bottom line you know it seems like we we have right. you know we, we treat the bottom line as the end-all be-all and to do anything mm-hmm. besides that makes no sense whereas in reality we're, we may be driving ourselves insane uh, in that pursuit of the bottom line right and a comment on that is it's when I first started, I thought that, well, maybe it's like, why don't we have this amazing prosperity everywhere on the planet? I thought, well, maybe the technology is not good enough. So started building this stuff. And I found that industrial productivity can be achieved on a small scale. Like the, there is no limit to the kinds of things you can do, especially with modern age, digital fabrication, 3d printing, CNC machines and all that. There's, that's not the issue. The issue is our mindset. And that is that, competitive mindset, the, the lack of a, we call it collaborative literacy, but idea of, can we work together with others? Can we actually share? Can we take on a mindset where we, we base our business models, not on scarcity or on creating scarcity? Because right now the status quo is we create business models that 
enforce artificial scarcity. They depend on things being scarce. We make things scarce. But that's, that's one way to do it. It's not the only way to do it. I understand that. Yeah, it's, um, and, and how about uh, in relation to, you know, like uh, if you're able to produce goods cheaper and, uh, you know, every day people are able to produce these goods, it's like how do you, you know, convince people of the quality over the quality of what's manufactured by some, you know, a specialist or, or a brand that produces that full time? Yeah, you would have to, do, I mean, as far as the open source, so, so let's clarify that open source is a development method, so it's a collaborative development method, but idea is that you would have to get all those things in place as well. Like say we start producing diesel engines, they have to be certified and, and proven and quality controlled. So you build that, all that infrastructure, but if you open source all the blueprints, documents and all of that, um, you can, that can actually help you. You, you, you do that through a collaborative process. So you still have to have the, the quality control and <clears throat> all the elements of what makes a product work, it, but you're doing it in a different way where simply people have access to it and it's transparent. Mm -hmm. I understand. And, and also one point that we didn't touch on is sort of how uh, you envision these uh, technologies to be buildable through more of like a Lego method in the way that we have yeah. right now. Could you touch upon that? Definitely. <clears throat> so in my TED talk, I mentioned that we built a tractor in six days. Well, we actually did better. We did one in two days. Wow. Uh, and how do you do that? So the idea is it's called module-based design. So think about a tractor being made of different modules. So there's the frame, there's the power unit, there's hydraulics, there's wheels, there's drive, there's controls. What we do is we, we design it such that each of the individual pieces can be built independently. Uh, so, so we do crowd-based builds like the tractor. We can take 12 people, you know, say you got six, six people in teams of two working on a different parts. So you build those individual parts and you, then you assemble them rapidly into place at the end. So it's, it's the idea that you're, you're breaking things down into things that you have defined how they fit together like Legos. So to give you another example, we run extreme build workshops where the house, actually house that I live in right now, uh, that was built by 50 people in five days. Now, how do you do that? So you basically break the house down into a bunch of four by eight foot panels. We built all the panels in a workshop and then assembled it pretty rapidly. So module-based design is the key to some of this Lego-like construction, which allows you one much faster build but also a construction set approach where you can build many different things. Like if you have the parts for a tractor with similar parts, you can build a bulldozer, a backhoe and other machines because uh, you interchange parts. It's incredible. And, and I, I encourage people to, I, I'm, I'm definitely going to be Googling module based design after this, but just that way of thinking in general is so powerful. It's like the, uh, I think there's, it's the principles of, differentiation and integration, right? The idea of if you, you know, understanding something fully is being able to understand it as a whole and also as its component parts and knowing how those fit together as a whole. And I think, yeah. you know, that, that perspective on, on building and engineering and especially, you know, building these kinds of uh, tools is really, it's something else. It's really phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. It, it does. Uh, the modular design part is a really good, good way to go as opposed to like this monolithic design where, say one part breaks, you kind of have to throw out the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's certainly the world we live in today. And, and, or if one part breaks, there's, 
no chance that you as an individual can fix it. You need to bring it to a specialist. Sure. Sorry, we're actually off grid in this house here, so I have to turn back to grid power. Okay. Oh, no problem. Yeah. Uh, do you have uh, do you have solar panels over there? Yeah, yeah. So this is the CD Eco home. I could actually ask. I'll send you a link afterwards, but this is the house. So we're off grid here, but we're also connected to the grid as well. So that's that's actually the kind of house that we, we'd be building at. As I mentioned, that we're, we're launching this kind of a house model that you can build yourself. We're launching that as a major project next year. Uh, that's incredible. I'm so uh, I'm actually in the solar industry. Uh, we were solar, uh, you know, residential solar. Uh, you know, we sell and install the panels for many homes, and uh, you know, it's very cool. Huh. I, I just love the idea of being off grid. I wish more people could uh, could experience, uh, you know, that reality. It's really just about the batteries. Yeah, yeah. You still do that right now? Yes, that's my business right now. It's called uh, Better Earth. Huh. Cool. Yeah. So, you know, it's very much in that same vein there of, you know, being self-sustainable, you know, uh, achieving freedom from the centralized, you know, authority there, which for many homeowners is their utility company with rising utility prices and so forth every single year. So energy yeah. independence is, is a, you know, an amazing thing. And that's why I love the idea of really anything where people can free themselves from the, yeah, it sounds a little dramatic, maybe like the corporate overlords, you know, the, dealing with providing all of your essentials from Amazon. It, I think it'd be much more fulfilling for people to be able to understand where their essentials come from, being able to understand yeah. how to build them themselves. And uh, it's overall, it makes for a much different lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, tell me about the homes. I'm, I'm very curious. I actually just read an article today about uh, something somewhat similar where they're working on building with innovative building methods, uh, you know, a home for $20,000 or you know, $50,000, being able to build something for much cheaper than the way homes are built today. And that one of the major constraints is the zoning requirements. Could you touch? Yeah. On, yeah. yeah. You know, all those is that things? a company that's actually doing that or is that? Uh, I think it was a, I think it was a, a university uh, project. I could pull up the details, but I believe oh, was it was that like, I know university of Auburn, university of Alabama. I believe so. Uh, yeah. The rural studio was that? I, I believe I so. Yes. That sounds like that. Well, so what we're trying to do is, uh, so we built this house in a workshop setting, fifty people, um, over five days, which is that's pretty amazing. I just watched a video of that, and it's like day one, like in one day we can put up all the walls. Second day, like roof, and then interior utilities. It's, wow! It's, close your mind. Uh, that's module-based design, but we're taking the learnings from that and teaching people how they can build a thousand square foot house that costs $50,000 that they can build themselves with a friend in one week. So it's truly that's, amazing. Yeah. So we're actually going to host a big collaborative event where we're going to swarm on basically documenting all the aspects of that, including the business side of how do you actually run a business doing this thing? Um, but I guess the unique, there is a little catch to it in the module-based design. The idea is that um, we say, oh, you can build this in one week with a single friend, but you actually have to build all the modules ahead of time. So every weekend you'll stash away a couple of modules. So for, for literally like a year, I mean, almost a year, mm -hmm. you'll, be, you'll be working like four hours or so on a weekend you have to build four modules every weekend. Each each module takes two hours. Okay. But after that, once you have them all stashed, then it, it takes a week 
with you and a friend to install that to build that complete house. And it's, it's a modern house. It's, it's also got the off-grid feature with the PV panels. Uh, but basically the module-based design, uh, trying to make it really attractive. We're actually doing a flat roof, um, things like that. But 1,000 square feet, that's something you can definitely live in. And it, you can make it smaller. If you, you, you want to start with a uh, smaller unit, we're building it in modules of 250 square feet so yep. that it's, it's a manageable process. But yeah, really working out the details. We know that we know that this is doable. We've had enough builds here that we're confident that that could work. Yeah. And how does that work with, uh, you know, is it able to meet the requirements of modern day zoning? Cause I, I mean, yeah. also in the solar end of things, you know, there's uh, endless red tape to fight through anytime anyone wants to do construction on their home or do anything. You have to meet all these building code requirements, which are, yeah. you know, it's, it's a lengthy amount of red tape. How do you deal with that? There's uh, so to begin with, the house is designed to be code compliant. Then the question is, okay, can you meet the, the, the inspection schedule on that? Because if you're building these modules, like for example, if there's an inspection on, a, in, on the house wrap, well, the modules already have the house wrap built into them. So there's some tricks like that where you have to, we don't know how to do that. We haven't figured out exactly the details of how that works, but we'll have to work it out so that we, we basically design a module such that they're inspectable. Like I know that you have to do the inspect the foundation and you got to inspect the roof. You got to inspect the insulation, the framing. So we're going to have to fit that within uh, the regular zoning process, the building code process. I don't think it's necessarily um, impossible. The idea is, might be that instead of a person building that in one week straight, because you have to get the inspectors out there at yep. particular times, it might be okay. So you do do this two days and then you get the inspector uh, who shows up like two weeks later, you know, yep. or something like that. And then you kind of might have to phase that out a little more, but that's definitely like when we think about it, that, that will be the main challenge. And we need a lot of legal support to pretty much first map out exactly what the uh, requirements are for each location. Cause this would be us wide. Yep. And if we know of course that on the coasts, the zoning is, is tougher in the Midwest, it's easier. So we might, uh, if we can't pull off the coasts, we will start throughout the Midwest between the two, between the Rockies and the Appalachians. But, uh, we'll have to make it work. That's, that's going to be a challenge. Yeah. And just for context for everyone out there, you know, the building codes in the United States are, are structured in a way where every single city and town has their own rules and there may be some state guidelines, but ultimately the jurisdiction falls on, you know, your city, town or county. Um, so every single one has their own set of details that must be adhered to, which makes innovation for, uh, you know, deploying something like house building technology nationwide incredibly difficult because uh, you're, it's unlikely you're ever going to be able to create some ultimate structure that is both cost uh, efficient and meets all the requirements of any area in the United States, any, any local building codes. Yeah. So there would have to be some customization involved and that's, we have a plan for that, that basically each house that we put out there, there will be customization work for it. Yeah. So when you say you have to build a, a module, is that maybe like a room? Is that building some of the... It's, uh, typically a four by eight foot panel. So think about a framed wall with two by sixes mm -hmm. and just a piece of the wall that's, that's four by eight feet. And that could be either a regular wall unit or it could have a window or it could have a door. But when you think about it, like when you break the house down, yep. you got a foundation, you got a floor, 
you got walls, you got roof, bathroom, kitchen, utilities. Mm-hmm. So for example, for the utilities, that might be challenging, right? How do you, how do you get all the utilities throughout the house? Well, the answer for that is there'll be a modular panel, which includes most of the gas, heat, electricity, water, so that it's a very manageable, small thing. And then, for example, how do you run the electricity to all the different rooms? Well, in the floor plan, you have a utility channel at the base of the, of the walls that you can put that all in, basically, put all your cabling in there. And if you need to modify things, put your outlets in there as well. So it's a, it's a, it's a module that you basically can do just, just like that in a snap. You don't have to go like into each, each uh, wall module and put in your outlets and electrical mm-hmm other conduits, it's all in, the, in these modules that, that are self-contained in some way. That's very interesting. How about, uh, how about with plumbing? You know, another, yeah. uh, you know, one thing that I found very interesting is that there's someone working on sort of like a waterless toilet and yeah. that sort of idea. Cause then, you know, especially in the United States, everyone is connected to some sort of septic system or, or mm-hmm. to the central mm-hmm. water grid, you could say, how, how does, uh, how do you approach that? With does your that homes? work? So there's two, the two options. One is the the version of the house with with grid connection. The second is without mm-hmm. in a grid connection. So you've got a plumbing t- t- into the sewer. In the off grid connection, you've got a biodigester. We actually have a biodigester in this house where we we process the water to gray water level, and there, then after that, you send that outside into a gray water leach field. But uh, if you're off grid, you we have we're actually using that right here, a biodigester that gets the waste both from the kitchen sink and from the toilet, processes all that waste uh, into gray water level. Um, so that, by designing the sink and toilet, it's actually got some plumbing in there that we use a macerating lift pump, so it make it very modular. There's a, basically a pedestal under the toilet that sends all that stuff against gravity into the biodigester. Uh, so once again, modularizing, there's this toilet unit unit mm-hmm. that can do that for you. So you're not, you're simple, you're able to simplify how you design the entire system. Got it. Um, and when you say biodigester, what is that like a large furnace or something? It's a, it's a 250 gallon tote of water mm-hmm. with certain plumbing that the, all the wastes go in there. They decompose. There's a vent stack, so we're actually off-gassing the gas right now. That would typically be connected to a gas bag that you can actually use that for cooking. We haven't gotten to that phase yet. We're still, like about two years now, uh, still testing and working on a digester part, which, which is working. Um, but we haven't put in the, the biogas part, which is another complication. We're not including that in the initial model. But if you are going to be off-grid, you can do this simple thing with a leach field where you can process your waste. Now, the other route, what we're going to include in the development for this, um, this house is actually an incinerating toilet. So if you have electricity, you can fry it. Wow. It's a basic idea. Those things are expensive, but once again, through open source uh, collaborative innovation, we'd like to make it so it's very affordable. And you can build that with the open source design. You can build this incinerating toilet relatively easily. That's the idea. You don't have to pay like, I don't know, it's thousands. I don't know how much these things are there. Last I checked, I think like a, a burnt and incinerating toilet is like at least like a couple of thousand bucks or 5,000. I don't know. Wow. Uh, but they're pretty expensive. It's yeah. That's, that's, you wouldn't just get. Yeah. And yeah. it's, it's for, you know, I think for Americans, it's hard to conceptualize like, you know, how, how 
major of an innovation it could be if we're able to develop something along those lines yeah. for much, much cheaper because we're so spoiled with our, you know, plumbing system. But in other, uh, if you go to Africa, for instance, that would be a extreme breakthrough in quality of life where people are still mostly using latrines, you yeah. know, uh, going to the bathroom in a hole somewhere. So it's pretty remarkable to think of what the o- open source sort of innovation could lead to. Yeah, innovation, like that's the whole point with the innovation on a house because we're making it completely open and, and you can collaborate in development. What about designing more ecological uh, wastewater systems? Like, for example, have you ever heard of the living machines? Uh, I haven't. It's a biological waste processing system, but but more advanced systems where you're basically reclaiming the waste and then turning it in, into fertilizer and stuff that goes into your garden to grow food uh, in a safe way uh, by combining things like we did a, also an aquaponic greenhouse that could be used. Uh, like for example, the, the gray water from the biodigest can be feeding grow beds and things wow. like that in an integrated food waste management system. So we haven't gotten that to that complete integration, but that's why we're calling for open innovation with more people and more eyeballs on a product project we can solve bigger problems. It's amazing. And um, one other area of the home that I'm curious about is, is uh, you know, airflow and, mm-hmm. you know, cooling or heating. Because yeah. one thing that's interesting to me is, uh, you know, in the modern world, we do so many workarounds and spend so much money on air conditioning, heating and things like that. Whereas, you know, the more that you study the way that ancient people would build structures or homes, they found innovative ways to design a structure to keep it cool or keep it warm using, you know, the principles of nature rather than relying yeah. on clunky machinery. What, what's your approach there? Yeah, yeah good design for like cross flow, uh, just passive Passive, passive cooling, uh, passive heating, yeah. Uh, well, here we have a, we just have a window air conditioner in the system and we have a pellet stove. Mm-hmm. We also have, a, we, we put in a hydronic system where we have hot water uh, circulating under the floor. That's also, you can actually download that design if you want to build an open source hydronic stove. We have that design wow. fully documented. Um, but yeah, right now we're keeping it somewhat simple on that with a pellet, like for the actual product release here, it's going to be simply a pellet stove and put an air conditioner in your in your window if you're in a hot climate and beyond that i mean if you have the off the ample solar power you can run that off grid if mm-hmm. you have ample solar power you can run your incinerating toilet no problem so that's uh the low cost of pv these days like like less than 50 cents a watt i mean most people don't recognize that right but the yeah, cost yeah. is ridiculously low right now and you can afford to do things even like your your incinerator toilet with a PV system. That was unheard of like a decade ago. Yeah, absolutely. And are you uh, leaving some space for a future battery installation? We have a small battery. We just use eight motorcycle batteries, just kind of like a buffer system. So we're basically uh, pretty much running with the daylight. And when it, when it comes night, we just uh, connect to the grid because we've got a dual system here, just mm-hmm. a transfer switch. Uh, but the eventual plans on that would be, I mean, we're talking about hydrogen splitting water and, and we're definitely believers of the hydrogen economy of the future. So kind of push an envelope on clean distributed energy. I mean, um, I think hydrogen is going to be the, be the future as a clean burning fuel for everything from cooking to transportation. So um, eventually we'd like to switch over to that, but we're not there yet, obviously. Got it. Yeah, I, I don't know too much about hydrogen um, compared to, you know, sort of the technologies of today. I mean, I've seen a lot of uh, 
uh, videos and resources about the future of potentially like a solid state battery. What do you have any thoughts on on you know that um, technology? Battery energy density is typically less, like much less than chemical energy. So like for the and chemical energy such as hydrogen. So if you talk about like grand classes of energy, there's there's electrochemical, which is like 10, 10x. If you talk about the physics underneath it, it's like mm -hmm. 10x less mass to to energy ratio. Like you can just get so much more out of that kilogram of hydrogen than you can get from that kilogram of battery. You know, so that's that's my thought on it. Now also, but solar thermal storage in the form of superheated water. It's called saturated water. Uh, not a lot of people know about this, but basically water that's above 100 degrees that's in a pressure vessel, uh, that also has a very favorable energy density, but not, not as much as, not as, much as uh, chemical energy like hydrogen or fossil fuels or whatever. Uh, so batteries, like we've got this craze of batteries right now, but I, I don't put a lot of hope in, in those as a long-term solution. Like like say the lithium, that's a scarce resource. Mm -hmm. um, and knowing that there's ample water for what I mentioned, the saturated water storage and, and thermal energy storage. Um, and you can do solar concentrator uh, where you're actually evaporating water and running um, modern steam engines with that. That kind of technology, like because the water route exists and the clean chemicals like hydrogen exist, I don't think the future is going to be batteries. Have you have you looked at all into the uh, future of of nuclear technology? I had a uh, MIT professor Michael Short on the show at one point, and yeah. uh, he described the potential of a future nuclear reactor that could be about the size of a shipping container that maybe yeah. neighborhood sized, you know, to power a neighborhood of homes or something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when I was in back in grad school, people used to joke um, uh, fusion energy. So that's fusion is a form of nuclear. Mm -hmm. uh, it's probably what he's referring to. It's probably, it's either fusion or fission. But, but the joke for fusion was that it's, oh, it's 10 years into the future. It always <laughs> was and it always will be. Yeah. So that's my um, that's my take on it. We have the sun 93 million miles away. Let's use that because that gives us 10,000 times more power than we use today. Uh, there is a fundamental like for anyone who wants to know a little bit more about the physics. There is a fundamental problem in, in nuclear energies in, in that they emit neutrons and neutrons at the high energies that they're produced. They make anything that they come in contact with radioactive and you cannot confine them with electromagnetic fields. So there's a fundamental problem that um, maybe if someone gets an answer to that, but according to human knowledge, that's an intractable problem. I'm not saying that we won't come up with something in the future, but if it's, if it's like, if you don't even have a hope right now that, that it can work, why bother? There's, I mean, to me, there's just easier solutions. Solar, it's clean. You're not going <laughs> to, yeah, nuts yeah. are not going to fall off, get radioactive. I mean, no, the radioactivity is a, is you cannot get around that with nuclear reactions. That's that's their nature. And then also some people talk about, uh, you know, aneutronic reactions, reactions that do not produce neutrons in their chemistry. And yeah, that's it's almost true, but you will have some, not maybe not as much. What they call aneutronic uh, means that there's going to be some, but not as much as the standard ways. So there's no such thing like a zero or a hundred. It's always a continuum. 
so we don't know the, the, the nuclear problem, or the nuclear issue. Yeah, we haven't, we don't know of a solution right now. I understand. How, how far out would you anticipate um, any sort of hydrogen-based technology being readily available? Uh, I would say 10 years, not to say the 10 years of the fusion thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's already doable. If you look at, so let me say like right now, even, uh, if you look at Google hydrogen fueling stations, they're on an uprise. Uh, hydrogen energy is a thing. That, that is a growing industry. Most people don't know about it. I think we're kind of in a battery craze these days. But um, right now, the simplest way you can do that, I mentioned the low cost of PV panels. Now, if you calculate that over the lifetime of the panel, you'll observe that you're getting two cent or even one cent, one to two cent per kilowatt hour energy costs. You put that together with what we know about electrolysis that you can break up water into hydrogen and oxygen and you're generating hydrogen at an electricity cost of 63 cents. I just did the math the other day, mm -hmm. but um, that means and a kilogram of hydrogen is about the equivalent of a gas gallon of gas. So you're talking 63 cents for the energy cost to generate hydrogen. People that's cheaper than a price of gas. So you can take that hydrogen and burn it in internal combustion engines, which are a proven technology. A lot of people talk about fuel cells. They're hard. Let's just say they're hard. Right now, you can take hydrogen that you produce from your off-grid PV system at one to two cents per kilowatt hour, generate hydrogen, and this is your hydrogen economy. Done. Now, obviously, there's a gap there because that's not happening. Yeah, you can, you can you can guess some of the reasons why it's not not, not the industry's interest to make this happen. Mm -hmm. This will come from innovative entrepreneurship. So all the people that don't don't go to college, <laughs> of course. And to put it in perspective for people, um, you know, one to two cents per kilowatt hour is a unbelievably low price. Even in the best markets, uh, that's that's probably five x better than even the best uh, electricity markets in the country now. The average consumer in California is paying, you know, close to uh, 25 cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, exactly. And, uh, please look at, there is the open source PV system page. I'll, I'll uh, send that, but there's, there's the math. You can look at my numbers and see if you argue any of them. This is, this is uh, I would say the biggest thing is people are just not aware of this math or of this possibility or the cost of PV panels. This, this is once again, the idea that we have kind of lost touch with, our ability to build real things and understand real phenomena here. Um, we're too far out into our specializations or not really seeing the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's an inter such an interesting time for your business and for this project because, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think as, you know, uh, things get shaken up a little bit, uh, yeah. especially like even in California right now, it's bizarre how, you know, there's rolling blackouts, uh, you know, they, they can't really keep the lights on, you know, you, you realize that we're much closer to, you know, a more, you know, uh, let's say a much more challenging standard of living than, than I think people are comfortable with or used to just because of how consistently uh, we've been, you know, experiencing technological breakthroughs and improvements that, you know, it would not take much for these things to sort of slip out from underneath us uh, with bad management, you know, bad, uh, you know, or some sort of, uh, you know, 10 X factor that could eliminate everything, whether, you know, natural disaster or, or what have you could make the living a much more challenging situation. Uh, and to have, 
I'm glad that you're out there doing this stuff, uh, making this, this project happen so that people can access these tools, access these blueprints and ultimately, you know, perhaps shift their focus so that if that time ever does come where, you know, we, we have to sort of dramatically change the way of life in America, we, we have a good starting place to, uh, you know, to, to build off of. Yeah. And the thing is, it's like you're saying, you know, us doing that work, but it's really about, this is the kind of stuff that if you, if you want to do this, yeah, you can. The idea is like, we can all be incredibly productive builders and creators and, most of us just have lost the touch with that. I really encourage people to, to get in touch with that more, skill up to, to start building real things. Because I mean, in my personal life, it was just a complete transformation where I, I shift from being a passive consumer to an unstoppable creator. I mean, that's how I feel about myself right now. I came from Poland under communism. I didn't even know like private enterprise existed. Like I could say I was uh, pretty much enslaved in my own mind but right now it's like having learned basic productivity with my own hands and some technology it's it's just such an empowering feeling that that if you think there's pro like problems okay energy crisis or housing crisis oh yeah the government's gonna fix it someone else is gonna fix it no it's up to us we we are the government here and we are the the authority and it's up to us to seize that power that's that's the message for everyone yeah, it's up to the people to be the change makers to go out there and, and you know innovate in these places. I, I love the message. I, I believe in taking responsibility on you know just about anything within your realm to do so. And uh, I think a lot of times we overlook some of the most basic areas where we could do that. It's it's yeah. a, it's a powerful uh, message and a, and a powerful way to live. Yeah. yeah. So where where do you see or or what what would probably let me ask this what what would be the most helpful thing for your movement for your uh, you know, uh, project, what, where, where would you like to direct people or what could people do to sort of advance this cause? Yeah, we have a long page of getting involved from joining the dev team to joining workshops, but it's like, we're actually a bootstrapping operation. So buy our products right now we're selling 3d printers. Actually next month we're running, a, a it's called the open source microfactory steam camp where you can learn how to build your own 3d printer. We ship you the kits, build your own printer, build your own microcontroller, build your own 3d printed electric motor. So we're, we're all about skilling people up. Uh, so if you want to get involved, join our dev team. But the biggest thing uh, you can support us with is buy our products. Or if you're really ambitious, if you want to live this, if you want to dedicate, we actually have a way that you can do this time so we're actually offering immersion training a mentorship where you can sign up for an entire year of, of mentoring so that you get all this as much of the skills and techniques for starting OSE chapters that do what we do which means run immersion education workshops produce the machines like the 3d printers so if you want to get it dive into it we have those opportunities that's incredible how how, uh, how many people do you have uh, sort of around you right now uh, we don't, we don't have a, a staff team. So we're working on, on that right now, like for the housing project for next year, mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to be looking at recruiting four full-time support staff, but basically just now it's pretty recent that we started to, to do the 3d printer sales. Um, over the last decade, it's the learning has been, it's all, it's been a lot about prototyping and developing things, but right now it's turning this into viable enterprises. 
So we don't have a team yet, but we're working on it. We're starting up the, the immersion training program for others to replicate. We have, I mean, if you talk about full-time equivalent staff and volunteers, we've got like four full-time equivalent of people who are contributing to the different design projects and, and other things right now. Well, it's a remarkable work that you're doing and I really appreciate that you're doing it. I'm glad that there are people focused on it. I look forward to seeing the growth in the future and I hope anyone listening who's interested, you know, gets in contact and, and uh, joins the movement. I think it's a really cool thing. And I think also just not to be pessimistic, but I think there's going to be a dramatic shakeup in the next, you know, yeah. whether it's 10 or 20 years uh, to our modern way of life. And I think uh, you're well positioned on the other end to, uh, you know, as people want to reconnect with craftsmanship, as people want to reconnect with uh, the important things in life, uh, you know, focusing on time, freedom, liberty, uh, rather than, you know, sort of monotonous march forward uh, into, you know, dead end job. You know, I think uh, there, there's a lot to be said about what you're doing now. And, I, and again, I appreciate you doing it. and I commend you for it. Thank you. One, one last thing to add to sure. that. It's like, you know, China's about to overtake the U.S. economy. The only way I could see that not happen is if we unleash open source industrial productivity that's taken up by many, many people, communities building micro factories all over the place and reinventing modern digital production with, with distributed open source technologies. That's, I feel like we could do a whole podcast just on that, <laughs> but that's a, that's a, a heavy topic, but, um, before we wrap up, are there any other asks, requests, or just message words of advice for the audience? Yeah, no, that's. Um, I think I think we covered some good things. I think the biggest biggest thing for me is to share that how I mean my life has changed absolutely upside down from feeling not so powerful to feeling like I'm a real change agent agent for the world. And um, I think to see it, you really gotta experience your own raw power of productivity so i encourage you to grab that love it unleash your inner productivity take responsibility and, and you know start building stuff love it um yeah. well martin it's been a pleasure talking to you uh i wish you best of luck in your endeavors and uh, i hope everyone you know takes some time to go check out watch the ted talk uh you know buy the 3d printers do whatever you can to support and uh and again, uh, truly best of luck in the future here. Love to see what's going to happen next. Yeah. Yeah. Love to see what's going to happen in your future. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, Martin. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please Help me make this a better experience for you and I look forward to hearing from you.
have an excellent day and thanks for listening.